0: This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Megwan, Wisconsin. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please visit our website, myabc.church. Last week we began to ask and answer the question, how do we as Christians live as ambassadors? of God's kingdom, and simultaneously exiles strangers, foreigners, living in the United States. And we fashioned together the basic building blocks of a biblical worldview. And a, and a biblical worldview always begins with the overarching storyline of Scripture. And I gave you a concise way to sum up the entire plot line of the Bible. Four words, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. The building blocks of a worldview, a biblical worldview. Now today, I want to uh, advance the conversation and try to establish the fact that Christians are exiles. That is, we are foreigners. We're strangers living in the United States. And if that's true, or since that's true, um, how do we live as exiles, as foreigners, as strangers in the United States. Now, let me establish the fact, first of all, that we are foreigners, that we're strangers, we're exiles. That is, what I mean by that is, Christians, what we believe and, and, and how we behave is becoming exceedingly foreign to the culture we inhabit. What we believe and how we behave is becoming exceedingly foreign to the culture we inhabit. For example, we believe that marriage is one man, one woman for life. That's becoming strange to the culture we inhabit. We believe that sex is a good gift that God has given to us to be thoroughly enjoyed within the context of a marriage between a man and a woman. And that has been strange for some time now. We believe Jesus was crucified, that he was raised from the dead, and that he's one day day going to return riding on the clouds. That is foreign to an increasing number of people in our nation. These beliefs are strange to our culture. So how do we Christians live with Christ-honoring competency as strangers and exiles in a foreign land? That's what I want to probe today. And we're going to do it by by taking a look at these things. We're going to look at three errors to avoid or how not to live as a Christian exile and three principles to apply, how to live as a Christian exile. Three errors to avoid, three principles to apply. Let's dive in. Three errors to avoid. Error number one, withdrawing from culture. Some professing Christians may be tempted to reenact M. Night Shyamalan's The Village Constructing a separatistic society within another society. Numerous examples of this type of thinking can be seen in some Mennonite groups. The Amish, the early Quakers, medieval monasteries. Those who formed these types of reclusive societies saw the world outside of them as evil and therefore necessitated the action of quarantining themselves away from it so as to avoid becoming tainted by it. This is a mistake for numerous reasons, but I'll mention just one. To withdraw from culture out of fear of being tainted by it underestimates the power of sin within our own hearts. Yes, there are elements of evil in society, but the Bible insists there are elements of evil within every human heart. Jeremiah seventeen nine: the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick who can understand it no one has summarized this truth better than alexander solzhenitsyn he wrote this gradually it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through states nor between classes nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. The line between good and evil doesn't run between Christians and gay activists. The line between good and evil does not run between Republicans and Democrats. The line between good and evil runs straight through the middle of every human heart. To withdraw from culture, completely underestimates the evil within every human heart. That's the first error we need to avoid. Second error we need to avoid is accommodating culture. Now, Christians should bend and flex to reach lost people where we can. We don't want Christianity or the gospel to seem unnecessarily foreign at merely the cultural level. So we want to bend and flex where we can. But a wholesale accommodation of the culture is out of the question. That should be pretty obvious because in the Bible, God's people are called exiles, foreigners, and strangers dozens of times. And when you think about the definition of a word like that, it does mean that there's going to be some type of distinction between Christians and those who aren't. The word itself implies that. That is, there will be beliefs and practices we Christians will hold on to that our surrounding culture will never accept. Now, let me give you an example, though, of one individual who professes to be a Christian that has done a wholesale accommodation of the culture. Luke Timothy Johnson is a Bible scholar and professing Christian. In fact, he's written a first-rate commentary in the book of Hebrews. When the Christian view of marriage had been clashing with the gay view of marriage a few years ago, Johnson said this, he said, I think it important to state clearly that we do in fact reject the straightforward commands of Scripture and appeal instead to another authority when we declare that same-sex unions can be holy and good. And what exactly is that authority? We appeal explicitly to the weight of our own experience and the experience thousands of others have witnessed to, which tells us that to claim our own sexual orientation is in fact to accept the way in which God has created us. Johnson exemplifies the kind of accommodation Christians are called to avoid. In his own words, he rejects the straightforward commands of Scripture and appeals instead to the authority of experience. This kind of accommodation is an error. One of my concerns for Christianity is that if we are no longer distinguishable from the surrounding culture at some point is the culture not going to look at us and say what's the point of you you're indistinguishable from the surrounding culture i don't understand your point i don't understand the point to your presence or what you're trying to do you look like us why bother if christianity is indistinguishable from the surrounding culture it no longer has anything unique to offer As Christians sent into the world to reach people with the gospel, we are going to bend and flex where we can to reach people. But there will be some areas where we remain uncompromising. Why? Because not every belief and not every practice is compatible with following Jesus. Third error is Christianizing culture. It's my firm conviction Christian values have been more prized than the Christian gospel since America's inception. That is most of those in the evangelical world probably still today get more excited over seeing a favorite political candidate win an election than we do over God saving a sinner. I think historically even within evangelicalism in America today Christian values have been more prized than the Christian Gospel. That's why, by the way, you can get traction still today with the phrase, God and country. That still gets traction in popular culture. But try a different phrase out there and see how much traction you get with this one. Instead of God and country, try the phrase, Christ and him crucified. See how much traction you get. And what do I mean by Christian values? Well, different Christians add to the list, but you could put on there monogamous marriage, the right to life, the nuclear family, the good of prayer, good of church attendance, strong military, American way of life. And those who profess to be Christians have fought tooth and nail to see these values take root in our country. This is what I mean by Christianizing culture. It's an attempt made by many to see these Christian values come to be shared by as many people as possible but there are, as with anything, unintended consequences. There's now an elephant in the room. What is that elephant? Well, Christianity has been seen as the best way to get these values to take root in our country. Christianity, in my view, has been used and abused. And in the meantime, we've completely missed Jesus and the gospel. And the result, we have millions of people who've been deceived into thinking they're Christians because they hold to Christian values. Believing in Christian values does not make you a Christian. Believing in monogamous marriage, the right to life, strong military, does not make you a Christian. You could gather a crowd of 10,000 people, convince them of the goodness of Christian values, only to see them spend eternity in hell. Let me tell you something. There will be lots of people in hell who believed in the right to life. What does it profit a person to believe in monogamous marriage but lose their soul? There's a place to debate these kinds of ethical issues, but if you as a Christian stop once you've converted them from pro-choice to pro-life, you have come up short. Because getting them to believe in pro-life causes does not save them. Christianizing culture is an error we need to avoid. There's a more nuanced way to go about this. I'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. So let's look at three principles to apply. Three principles to apply. Three errors to avoid withdrawing from culture, accommodating culture, Christianizing culture. Let's look at three principles to apply. Number one seek the peace and prosperity of our community. Let me read from Jeremiah 29. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles, and to the priests, the prophets, and all other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. Because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Now, Jerusalem was invaded and conquered in 587 BC by the Babylonian Empire. God's people, Israel, were removed from their homes. They were transported to Babylon where they were now living as exiles there. These verses are instructions from God himself on how they are to live as exiles in Babylon. Now, let's get something straight here. The worldview of a typical Israelite and the worldview of a typical Babylonian were light years apart. That is, what the typical Israelite, Israelite believed and practiced was vastly different than what a typical Babylonian believed and practiced. So the words that God speaks to his people on how they're to live as exiles is pure gold. He says, build houses and settle down, which means make your life there. Get comfortable. You're going to be there a while. Do what you would have done if you were back in Jerusalem. Live an ordinary, typical life. Work so you have food to eat. Get married, have kids. See to it, your kids live an ordinary, typical life, working so they have food to eat. And look at verse seven. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. He doesn't say withdraw from it. He doesn't say protect yourselves from it. He doesn't say keep a distance from it. He says, seek the peace and prosperity of this city. I was thinking through that. I wanted to think of biblical ways in which God would have us to seek the peace and prosperity of our community. I came up with two. There's probably many more, but I came up with two. The first is this. Do your job with integrity and excellence. If you want to seek the peace and prosperity of your community, do your job with integrity and excellence. I find this in Daniel chapter 6. Daniel was one of God's people. He too was in exile living in Babylon. Daniel chapter six, we read this. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel and his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. So Daniel's a Jew, exiled in Babylon, working in government. And notice the qualities that Daniel demonstrated day in and day out in his job. He was good at what he did, and he was honest. He was good at what he did, and he was honest. He did his job with integrity. He did it with excellence. Nothing will do more damage to the peace and prosperity of our community than dishonesty and mediocrity. Put dishonesty and mediocrity together in a bowl and see what happens in a community. It will ravage it. So one of the ways we as God's people living in exile can seek the peace and prosperity of our community is to do our daily work with integrity and excellence. There's a second way we can seek the peace and prosperity of our community. We can be compassionate and generous to those in need. be compassionate and generous to those in need. Maybe you're familiar with Jesus' parable, the Good Samaritan. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was robbed, beaten, left for dead on the side of the road. Two Jewish men, one after the other, pass right by him, not offering him any aid, though he's a fellow countryman. A Samaritan, however, stops, takes care of this man as at a great cost to himself. You've got to understand, the distance between a Jew and a Samaritan was, was outrageous. They had a sordid history with each other. They were polar opposites. How they... What they believed, how they behaved, was very different. Yet here the Samaritan is offering generous aid to someone who could be considered an other to him. I find it interesting that this parable Jesus tells is answering a specific question. The question was Who is my neighbor? The parable is meant to answer the identity of someone who should be considered your neighbor. And the answer is, someone who believes and behaves very differently than you do is your neighbor. Now we don't live in an area that is immune to social problems. In Ozaki County in 2016, there were 579 reports of possible child abuse. Nearly 5,000 households received food share assistance. 6,500 people qualified for medical assistance. 67 youth were placed in group homes, foster homes, correction facilities, or other living arrangements. The COPE hotline, which exists to provide emotional support, crisis intervention, received 31,000 calls in 2016. So while Zaki County might be a nice place to live, it's not immune to problems. The organization Family Sharing located in Grafton seeks to alleviate hunger in Ozaki County. I was meeting with the development director of Family Sharing a few weeks ago just trying to find out the ins and outs of their organization, and she said that every year they have an event designed to feed the hungry of Ozaki County. The event is called Empty Bowls. I asked her about it, got some details about it, and At one point I said to her, so how many volunteers does it take to run this, to execute this event? She said it takes about 30. I said to her, what if the people of Alliance Bible Church take care of all of that for you? Would that be okay? She was surprised and thrilled. So she sent me the sign-up list this past week. This event takes place on on a thursday november 2nd empty bowls it's during the day so that'll preclude you from, from some of you from volunteering um there are sign-up sheets at the welcome center some of the some of the play i mean very detailed events event set up from 9:30 a.m to 11 uh, setting up soup stations uh, setting up table linens um Wiping trays, washing dishes, cleaning up, reloading the truck, serving the soup, heating the soup, packing leftovers, replenishing the bread, and replenishing the dessert. There's only one person needed for that, and I, my name's already there. Okay, I can, you can't have the replenish bread and dessert. That's mine. There are 34 spots available, and Alliance Bible Church is going to take care of this for family sharing. So if you would like to be a part of that, um, these sign-up sheets we're going to make available for the next few Sundays. They're at the Welcome Center. Sign up. Take a spot. Take a shift. Because Jesus has given us permission to be generous and compassionate toward those who believe and behave differently than we do. That is also the principle that is driving the student union, or TSU, as we have called it, in-house. Now, some of you might be newer to the church, not familiar with this. The Student Union or or TSU is located in the historic district of downtown Cedarburg. If you were to walk into it, your first reaction would be, this is a coffee shop, and you'd be right. Your second reaction would be, this is a really nice coffee shop, and you would also be right. But it's, uh, it's not only the nicest coffee shop in Cedarburg, it's a coffee shop for students only. People of Alliance Bible Church wanted to create a safe place for students to find community, thus was birthed TSU. But it's even more than that. For the past eight or, eight or nine years or so, ABC has offered a free educational support program for students called Acacia. And we reach students all over Ozaki County through this. That's now located at the student union. I hope to be able to say more about TSU's official launch date in the near future. One of the principles that gave birth to it is this idea that Jesus has encouraged us to be compassionate and generous to people who believe and behave differently than we do. This should cause us to think about to what extent our church's purse strings are open to benefit those outside the walls of the church a Samaritan caring for the material and physical well-being of a Jew was about as outside the walls as you could get in the first century. And it was Jesus himself who composed the parable. Principle number two, live in obedience to God. Let's pick up Daniel's story, starting in verse three. Now Daniel so distinguished himself "'among the administrators and the satraps "'by his exceptional qualities the king planned to set over him the whole kingdom. "'At this, the administrators and the satraps "'tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, "'but they were unable to do so. "'They could find no corruption in him "'because he was trustworthy "'and neither corrupt nor negligent. "'Finally, these men said, "'We will never find any basis for charges "'against this man Daniel "'unless it has something to do with the law of his God.' And so here's what the satraps and administrators do. They went to King Darius and they encouraged Darius to pass a law saying people are forbidden to pray to anyone but him, the king. Of course, Darius loved this idea. He passes the law. So what is Daniel to do? He gets finished with work. That same day, he goes home. He puts himself underneath his window and he prays to his God as he had done every day before then. He drew a line in the sand. He drew a line in the sand. He does not accommodate culture on this one. He continues to do his job with integrity and excellence, but he does not accommodate the culture either. Obedience to God is the priority. 1 Peter is written to exiles as well. Look what Peter has to say to these Christians. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. So God says to these Christians, live in reverent fear. Of whom? Of him. God, the judge, the one to whom everyone will one day give an account. You're primarily concerned with living for God's approval, not the culture's. Obedience to God is the priority. Why? Because on judgment day, there will be only one opinion of you that counts for anything. And that is what God thinks of you. Principle number three, lead with the gospel. Earlier I mentioned that one of the errors we need to avoid as a church and even in our individual Christian lives, is merely stopping with Christianizing culture with so-called Christian values. Now, for some, and I'm thinking primarily those who work either with, in the fields where formation and enforcement of laws take place, I hope your Christian values inform what laws you'd like to see on the books and enforced. That's your livelihood. That's a good thing. But in regards to the mission of the church, in regards to the mission of our individual Christian lives lived before God, our primary mission is not to convert people to a value system. It's to convert people to Jesus Christ. Holiness is not the path to Jesus. Jesus is the path to holiness. The order is important. So as we evangelize the nations, as we lead with the gospel, as we communicate it far and wide, we have to do it with modest expectations. Why? Matthew 7, Jesus speaks, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. So as we lead with the gospel, we call people to repentance and faith, have modest expectations, how people will respond, because Jesus himself says more people are going to reject the gospel you communicate to them than receive it. That's just the way it is. And you're not going to change that. So we're going to cast a wide net. We're going to communicate the gospel far and wide, and we're going to do it frequently, but we're going to do it with modest expectations, recognizing that wide is the road that leads to destruction. And narrow is the road that leads to life, and few find it. Let me recap. What Christians believe and how we practice is becoming increasingly strange to the surrounding culture. We are exiles. So how do we live with Christ-honoring competency as strangers and foreigners in our world? first error to avoid is withdrawing from culture. The line between good and evil doesn't run between Christians and non-Christians. The line between good and evil runs straight through the middle of every human heart. Withdrawing from culture operates under the assumption that the evil outside us is a greater threat to us than the evil inside us. Instead of withdrawing from culture, we're going to seek the peace and prosperity of our community. This is where we engage the surrounding culture rather than when withdrawing from it two great ways to seek the peace and prosperity of your community do your job with integrity and excellence and look for opportunities to be compassionate and generous to those in need even if that means being compassionate and generous to those who believe and behave very differently than you do second error to avoid is accommodating culture we are going to bend and flex as much as possible as much as the bible gives us room to do in order to reach lost people But a line in the sand will be drawn at some point. Not every belief, not every practice is compatible with following Jesus. Instead, we're going to live in obedience to God. This is where the line in the sand is drawn. Third error to avoid is Christianizing culture. Converting people to a value system can be deceiving. There are lots of people walking around our community who think they're Christians because they hold to a Christian value system. That's not a biblical definition of Christian. Instead, we need to lead with the gospel. The primary mission of every Christian, of every church, is to convert people to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So as we seek to do that, we're going to have modest expectations about how people will respond. Now, there's one residual question that I've not answered tried to establish the fact that Christians are exiles. I've tried to show you how not to live as a Christian exile, how to live as a Christian exile, but one question I have not asked or answered is this. Is it a good thing or is it a bad thing? Christians are exiles. Is it a good thing or is it a bad thing? I want to close with that. Russell Moore has written a fantastic book, On the whole topic called Onward, Engaging the Culture Without Losing the Gospel. In it he tells a story. He was a youth pastor serving in the Bible Belt. And he writes this: There were two groups that divided the youth group there in Biloxi. The first group was made up of churched kids, those who did what was expected in the Bible Belt. They made professions of faith, followed by baptism as young children. These kids knew the gospel from start to last and could rattle off the right answers at will. The gospel neither surprised nor alarmed them. They knew how to embrace just enough of an almost gospel to stay within the tribe without embracing so much gospel as to encounter the lordship of Christ. But as time went on, another group of teenagers started to trickle into our Wednesday night Bible studies. The second group was mostly fatherless boys and girls some of them gang members, all of them completely unfamiliar with the culture of the church and with the message of the gospel. Some of them unwittingly reversed the Protestant Reformation by persistently calling me Father Moore just because the only clergy they'd ever seen were Catholic priests in movies. Prayer request time often proved challenging with one girl asking for prayer that she wouldn't get pregnant that weekend since she'd run out of birth control pills. Some of them would show up in a cloud of marijuana. The church was so strange to them that they didn't know what to hide. The church kids, though, learned the dark side of Bible Belt culture how to know the books of the Bible in order, how to answer all the right questions in small group discussion, and how to get drunk, have sex, and smoke marijuana without their parents ever knowing it. Recognizing that many of the baptized kids in my orbit were, in fact, pagan, I shared the gospel but I kept hitting wall after wall of invincible intelligence. The unchurched kids laughed at the Bible studies based on television shows or songs of the moment. They weren't impressed at all by the video clips provided by my denomination's publisher or to the knockoff Christian boy bands crooning about the hotness of sexual purity. What riveted their attention wasn't what was relatable to them, but what wasn't. They were drawn not to our sameness, but to our strangeness. So, like, you really believe this dead guy came back to life? One of the unchurched 15 year old boys asked me one day. I do, I replied. He said, Wait, for real? Yeah, for real. He blinked and whispered, Dude. That's crazy. But he stayed around and he listened. What I find so interesting about the story is that what kept these promiscuous pot-smoking gangbangers around the church and the gospel was not how relevant Christians were to them. What kept them around was how strange Christians in the gospel were to them. That's how Christianity grew exponentially in its first three centuries. It wasn't Christianity's sameness to the culture that attracted people to it. It was its strangeness. That's why I'm incredibly thankful that Christianity once again is becoming strange to 21st century American culture. God has orchestrated the events in our country in such a way that he has presented us now with a golden opportunity. Not to reach out to the culture and show it how we want them to like us. Not to reach out to the culture with our sameness, but to reach out to the culture with our strangeness. And we will do that. We will do that as we seek the peace and prosperity of our community while simultaneously living in obedience to God and leading with the gospel. And God, we ask you for your help with that. Let's pray. Sovereign and gracious God, this is your world and everything we see unfolding around us is going exactly according to your plan. There's no need to panic. All we have to do is pay close attention to your word. It's all there. In it, you've given us everything we need to navigate these waters. I pray for your spirit's empowerment to do so faithfully and courageously. And we're going to trust you, God, with the results. Thank you for the privilege of knowing you, being participants in your work in this world. and We pray that all of it would be done for the sake of Christ and the gospel. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.